At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, new fresh face. Always love having new folks to talk to on the show. This is going to be a good one. We're going to talk a little uh, economics, a little regulation. Who knows what else we might even get into because this guy studies Egyptian ancient history. Might have to ask him about that. Mike Viola, great of you to join us. Appreciate your time, sir. Absolutely. Great to be here. I appreciate it. Um, let's start with this. You work for Fee. We've had our friends on there before. Of course, we know our friends Brad and Hannah and others from Fee. They do good work. What got you into wanting to study economics? Before we get into your piece, I always ask people, like, why do you get into your fields of expertise? What is it about economics? Are you just, you know, a data geek for the numbers? Is it the people part of it? Tell me why you like economics so much, because I think people hear economics and then they have this reaction of like, oh, that's a bunch of math or, oh, that's just the unemployment numbers. It's such a broad field. Put a personal face on it on why you get into this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I studied nothing numbers related in college. I studied ancient Egyptian history and hieroglyphs, and I, I double majored in poli sci. So I was coming from a very uh, non-quantitative background. But um, as an undergrad, I went to the University of Chicago, where Milton Friedman um, and a number of other econ economists had sort of built up the Chicago school and left a really lasting legacy there. And I would watch those Milton Friedman videos that you know, would oftentimes be, be promoted through our economics department. Um, and I was just absolutely floored away, A, by his absolute civility and dealing with hostile questions all the time, but B, the clarity with which he explained why free markets um, create the, the best circumstances for success of everyday people. And so that really moved me towards an economic liberty mindset. And it just became a bit of a, a passion for me uh, since then, even though it was never really formally what I studied. After college, I worked in finance for five years and sort of seeing just the amount of regulation that gets in the way of financials and the way that, you know, oftentimes uh, regulatory capture is used to the benefit of big players from the financial system and holds things back. That really motivated me to, you know, make my next step more um, advocating in the economic space rather than um, playing behind the scenes with, you know, the types of people who manipulate those those economic systems. So that that was really my my path to working at B. Now, here's the thing, though, because people think, well, ancient Egyptian history and economics of the modern time have nothing to do with each other, but. We, you know, one of our core values on this program is things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Economics explains the sequence. Those pyramids didn't just appear, although the alien people on History Channel keep trying to explain that to us. 
that is economics though how those pyramids got yeah. built and all the slave labor and how they use things and how they oversaw things that is part of economics those don't seem like they go together but yeah they kind of do because economics is a human history story so it's not that far-fetched is it no it's not i mean you know the pyramids are a great example right it's sort of like thomas Sowell's notion that there are no solutions only trade-offs right like they're building the pyramids were a massive trade-off with the the general populace being able to produce agriculturally for themselves or to produce new ideas new technologies in in farming and and artisanship that were really the the primary economy for normal people back then right like there there was a massive societal trade or a trade-off to putting 30 years of the populace's labor towards building the king's tomb instead of you know towards their own ends freely chosen as as to you know meeting their own needs so yeah i mean there's there's a huge economic portion of that um a lot of that early state formation in egypt like one of the very first states organized states with writing that we know of was totally around the elite class's ability to to use economics to their advantage right as opposed to sort of to the betterment of society so there's a huge connection there. It's just like, I, I think from the earliest civilizations today, there's there's a straight line through everything. Yeah, and the word we use in our modern vernacular and in the Western and English-speaking word for those trade-offs is regulation because that's where the trade-off mm -hmm. meets the populace. There's the balance. How much is government going to control? How much is the people in the free market going to control? And regulation is where the ratio adjusts between the two. That's a real basic bare bones readers digest version of it, but that's really what we're talking about. And that's why those two things go together, even though they sound like they're completely different, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. Um, you know, in, in that respect, I think general population who doesn't have the ability to follow politics all the time, um, doesn't really understand that a lot of these so-called regulations around the idea of making your life easier actually makes doing business much harder for people all across the income spectrum and that ultimately has an impact on their bottom lines and how they're able to live their lives and how they're able to support themselves now, we're not anarchists so before we delve into because we're going to do some bashing of regulation here because it deserves it but we also need regulation it's important to have accountable government and good regulation is part of that accountable government because you do need guardrails on the economy Let's be fair here. Um, unfettered business usually gets to be as tyrannical as unfettered government does. There does need to be a ratio there. What's some of the guide rails that you look to for a healthy ratio when it comes to regulation versus the free market versus government power? Yeah, well, so that's that's a really interesting notion, right? Like where do regulations um, help and where do they hurt? On one hand, I think oftentimes regulations that prevent any sort of business collusion or, or preventing price fixing. Anti-monopolistic regulations, I mean, surely antitrust has been abused in recent years, but fundamentally the idea is that we need to be promoting competition. And in the rare cases where regulation actually preserve competition, I absolutely think that that should factor into the conversation. But then you also have the question of regulatory capture, right? Oftentimes regulations are in fact benefiting the biggest players in, in the business world because competition can't occur. So there, there's almost the test of like, is ultimately is a regulation pro-competition or anti-competition? And that's probably the simplest test as to whether or not it's going to help um, the average person. Now there's also regulations around say commons problems, right? Like 
I do, in fact, think the government should be saying that you can't say dump toxic waste into our waterways, right? Because um, while nobody may, nobody in the private sector may own those waterways, um, obviously people need to be protected from, say, their pollution or, you know, air pollution in ways that like privately owned businesses can obviously control for not wanting their own property ruined. So those sorts of commons questions also need to, to come into play when you're thinking about regulation. Yeah, and we've had real world examples that we haven't really had in recent memory or at least living memory for most people. Things like COVID were regulations that folks normally don't think of. Come to, and I'm not just talking about the vaccine stuff. I'm talking about when a business can and can't be closed for health reasons, when a school can be closed for health reasons. This brought it to the front. And what it really showed was two things. One is people don't think about how much regulation actually manages their lives. And two is, and you've talked about this a little bit, if you can get rid of a regulation for an emergency reason, did you really need it in the first place? Now, those are two separate conversations, but they're also running parallel. And every now and then they collide and things like COVID, things like economic hardship. That's when those things start crossing streams. And that's where we need to have the conversation of what good regulation is, because when crisis comes, that's when you really find out, isn't it? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Right. Um, you know, it happened in a, a lot of cities, a lot of states. Um, you know, I'm thinking about in Chicago, for example, which was where I lived during the, the earlier part of the pandemic. Like, for example, permits to eat for outdoor dining were made much easier. Right. Um, it's like, well, why was that so difficult to get previously? Um, you know, like maybe there are reasons other than you know, the harder to transmit virus outside. Maybe there are other reasons why you might want to eat outside from time to time or why restaurants would want to provide that to their consumers. So it just, you have to wonder why there are so many restrictions on our day-to-day -day life when, you know, you can then just remove them um, when they become politically inconvenient. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that you ever needed it in the first place. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Now, you give some examples. We're going to work off your piece in Spectator. We're going to link to the whole piece, as always. Read the whole piece for yourself. There's also a lot of linked information in there. Read it for yourself. But just taking a couple of things out of here, you have a couple of examples here. But big picture-wise, we understand that President Biden is a Democrat. We understand that the basis of the Democrat Party and our friends that are more on the left, they like big government. They like more regulation. The Biden administration has put in a lot of regulations in the first two years of their administration, really the first 18 months as we're talking. This is expected with a Democratic president. How does this fall compared to previous presidents just on the numbers and what his overall policy goals and how he's enacting it through regulation? How does this land? 
Yeah. So as we know, the president has some rulemaking power, right? In the executive branch, there's lots of, um, you know, state defense, but also those more economically targeted departments like commerce, labor, transportation. With all that, the president has some latitude to set rules on how those um, on how those bureaucracies do their job. And so um, oftentimes they can pass regulations that don't need to go through Congress because they're deciding how the executive branch does its job. Joe Biden did, I believe it was 94 such rules within those departments, 94 what are called economically significant rules. That is those rules with an impact on the economy of over a hundred million. Um, as projected by the budget office. Um, for comparison, Donald Trump passed 34 economically significant rules in his time in office, or, or rather, excuse me, in his first year in office. Um, and Barack Obama passed only 78 in his first year in office. And Barack Obama was not exactly a small government guy. So the fact that Joe Biden found, you know, 94 different ways that we should impact the economy to that extent um, negatively is a bit striking, particularly given that we were already recovering from the economic impact of our COVID response. Yeah, and we see this in other areas. We see it in energy, of course. Folks don't realize, like, well, why are gas prices a lagging indicator? Well, because it has to be produced, and, and the production and transported is highly regulated. We see it in agriculture. We see it in manufacturing. We see it in transportation. We see it in healthcare. What is it about regulation? Because I, I've used this example before. It's like, once they put these regulations in, they're there until somebody takes them back out. A lot of times they don't ever get adjusted, taken out, or updated. This is the inertia of the American bureaucratic system and how it affects the economy, even when we're not paying attention to it. It just is, and it's always there, and it's always doing something, whether we realize it or not. And that's a big part of our economy that we don't really talk about much, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a number of ways you can think about how it affects people, right? Like, on one hand, regulations are almost like a tax. Um, they might make they might make a business's job more expensive, right? More, say, you know, with building regulations, maybe they need a more expensive kind of insulation. With healthcare regulations, maybe you need to do a procedure a certain way with more expensive tools. You can think of anything across any sector where um, regulation fundamentally acts like a tax. It can also act as a barrier to entry, right? So you get less competition because fewer new businesses can meet the price required to enter markets because of all the regulatory uh, overhead that they would need to acquire. That leads to higher prices for consumers. Those yeah. are my primary you know, regulatory concerns. Ultimately, um, they make life more expensive at different points in the process. And ultimately that gets passed on to the consumer and has an impact on the broader economy. Look, let's be honest here. This topic gets wonky. Every time I have an economist on, I always tell them, I was like, you know, there's a lot of math and I don't like math. I admit it. I, I never got past algebra one in school because you could still get away with it back then. You could take geometry and they'd slide you just so they'd get me out of the school. How do we talk better about economics with folks? I always ask this question anytime somebody economical comes onto this show. It's a better way to talk about this stuff. Is it the practical stuff like a gas prices or the COVID stuff? Is it a is it more of a policy term of like we need to have a free market ideology or whatever you want to pick an ideology thing? 
when you're just talking to normal people or we're talking on our social media, what's the best way to kind of get into these economic issues? Is it the is it the people side of it? Is like, hey, this affects you. Is it the government side of like, hey, this is what our government's doing? What do you think? Well, so what you're touching on is kind of the the, the broader question of economics and politics, right? And I think the best strategy to go about it is to target the people side, but to make sure that normal people understand the why at a very basic level, right? Like part of part of the great thing about a diversified economy is that not everybody needs to think about every issue all the time. Um, and that's kind of translated into our political system as well. We don't want people to have to think about the economics behind everything all the time, but they should be able to understand, say, why gas prices spiked and that it's not just because you know, Putin so willed it. It's it's because gratuitously made it more difficult in, during the recovery from the pandemic to import foreign gas and to drill within the United States. And then we had an exogenous shock of the Ukraine crisis that made our supply go down and prices skyrocket, right? That is a very simple explanation that I think just about any regular old consumer can understand. And that is how we should be explaining economics to people, right? Yes, there is the people side, but when you give them that background information and give them sort of that broader theory, like as supply goes down, the prices go up, um, that helps people understand and make more informed decisions. It gives them the power at the to understand at the ballot box how to vote accordingly, understanding of what goes into these prices. Uh, that impact on the economy. We're going to talk about both the finance side and the government side of regulation because he's worked in finance. We're going to ask him about that. Might also get a little bit more ancient Egyptian worked in the mix somewhere in here. We're having a great conversation with Mike Viola. Regulation from ancient times to modern times as Hertel continues right after this. Ah, oh, welcome back For to sure. Hertel. Mike Viola is joining us. Thrilled to have him. We're talking regulation. We're talking a lot of other things too. It's understandable. One thing we talk about before is, you know, I said it about Trump. I'll say it about Biden. I said it about Obama and yeah. all the presidents of my lifetime. When it comes to economics, the president always gets too much blame and too much credit. We know this is just a fact. Why do we have this cognitive dissonance where we don't seem to want to blame Congress, who does have the enumerated power of the purse? This is supposed to be their. This is supposed to be our direct representatives. How come we don't blame Congress for the economy more often? We more tend to go towards the president or things like this. Yeah, that's a good question. I think the fact that the presidency has taken such an outsized role in our politics has led people to think that the president affects you know, everything under the sun. But that doesn't change the fact that, yes, we do need to pay more attention to Congress. A big problem with Congress, of course, is that in every spending bill, they like to add all of their own little regulations or handouts to their own district. Um, and oftentimes people like what their own hometown congressperson advocates for, right? So they're the sort of the issue because most people like their own congressional representatives and like what their own congressional representatives are doing. And, you know, oftentimes don't 
really think that that is oftentimes where the real source of the problem is. If you add up the the local interests of every single person in Congress, obviously there's going to be a lot more than the United States can actually handle in terms of spending and in terms of the burden that it puts on our economy. Um, so Congress should be our true target. But I think given the president's outside role in our politics and the fact that it's a lot easier to blame someone who you didn't vote for at the local level, who's talking about all your local issues, the, the president becomes a much easier target for those people who want to imagine that one person is pulling the strings. While we're defending the indefensible, big finance gets a bad rap, sometimes justifiably because they can be corrupt like everybody else. But you've worked in finance. Let people know the fact we're talking about these regulations, though. Even the stuff they do that is somewhat untoward and that people don't really like, a lot of that is dictated to them by regulation, though. How much of the financial sector, because you've worked on it and you also study economics, a lot of what they do is within the guide rails of the regulations that the government lays out for them, and then they're reacted to it. Talk about that a little bit, because that's another one of those economic things where I don't think we get the whole picture. We pick out one little part of it, like, oh, well, they're raising prices on this or whatever. Regulation greatly affects how big finance and the financial sector reacts to things, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So when I worked in finance, my, my most recent role was um, analyzing mutual funds that invest in bonds, right? So I would talk to people who buy up debt. And there I kind of learned um, that so many subsectors there are just so dependent on regulation, right? Like there were people who had to change their entire investment thesis because of different uh, lockdown regulations around the country, for example, right? Like when real world regulations have a huge effect on finance, but then there's also the impact on the financial sector itself, right? Across the country, after the 2008 financial crisis, um, we passed a lot of new regulations on the financial sector. And that led to small community banks around the country shuttering their doors because they couldn't meet the new banking regulations. So all that did was consolidate power for the biggest banks, which could then reach all around the country or move banks to say, a purely online format without any sort of brick and mortar and all the convenience that you used to be able to have of being able to walk into a bank. So it actually made a lot of the banking experience worse for the normal consumer. In investments, that's true too. When I was writing investment analyses, the restrictions on what I could say and how I could characterize my own words were enormous, right? And so that seriously stifled um, the way that people discussed financial matters, right? Um, they often say that, you know, the, the great thing about financial markets is that they communicate economic information ahead of time by the changes in asset prices, right? When sort of the smart money buys or sells something, that should tell you what they really think the confidence in, say, a company uh, really is. But oftentimes, I, as a writer in the financial industry, couldn't communicate that information because of FINRA and SEC regulations as to what could be presented as investment advice or opinion, which is heavily regulated and makes communicating critical information to investors much, much harder. Does the government get too in its own way when it comes to things like this? And we know they overregulate because the bureaucratic state's first job is to perpetuate the bureaucratic state. 
and that doesn't matter who's the president. It, it, it does it for the Republicans and Democrats alike. But when it comes to policy stuff like that, why is it so adversarial between the government and the private sector and the regular citizens and the people that control finance? There's got to be some better way to do this, right? And whether that's, you know, less regulation is kind of a unicorn we're going to always chase. But there's got to be some practical way for these folks to get along and at least work together a little bit better, doesn't there? Uh, well, I would certainly hope so. Um, I I think part of what's to blame is the use of different private institutions sort of as boogeymen, right? Like in 2008, big banks became the boogeymen, which while I, I don't exactly think they were blameless, you know, that also comes in the context of essentially being threatened in the 90s by the Justice Department to give out loans that people couldn't pay off, right? So um, there is sort of this cycle of expecting American corporations to do the government's bidding or to institute projects that they believe they can do faster than the market can. And so I think there, there's a, it's a chicken and the egg question, right? I, I think a, a freer market would reduce that adversarial component between American business and consumers and government. But I'm not sure we could actually get there without a toning down of the rhetoric already. Mike Viola is joining us. Great stuff. Speaking of toning down the rhetoric, uh, you're a new friend of the program. We're definitely going to have you back. But friends hold friends accountable. I was looking at your Twitter feed. Let's talk about your rhetoric a little bit here. Uh, there was the tragic incident outside of Memphis where a truck carrying Alfredo sauce spilled all over I-55. I know that road well because I was in Little Rock for a couple of years. And you quoted, and I quote, good, Alfredo is the worst so-called, in quotes, Italian sauce. Mike Viola, defend your tweet. <laughs> yeah, so I will just say, I have never at any real Italian restaurant had Alfredo. My grandparents came here from Italy in the late 50s. They never made anything called an Alfredo. It is a mess of heavy cream, which is hardly ever used in Italian cooking. Um, now, if you wanted to make, say, a nice cacio e pepe with, you know, olive oil and cheese, maybe a little butter, totally fair. But this heavy cream canned nonsense that we call Alfredo, I build all over a highway is exactly where it belongs. I, I see no use for it. You may think you'd like Alfredo. First of all, and of course, here's the real thing. Yeah, first of all, of course, yeah, American Italian food is a whole different thing than actual Italian food. Let's just get that right, because almost all of what we know of as American Italian with all the cheese and all that stuff, that all came out of New York City and the immigrant population. That's different than if you actually go to Italy, which I have done because I lived in Europe twice, and you eat, eat Italian food, it's completely different. But same can be said for Mexican food and Tex-Mex and other things. We always put our spin on. So, yeah, Alfredo is a is a uniquely American tradition. However, it's still pretty good to eat as long as you don't. I guess the Italian thing would probably bother you. But it, look, I'd probably be the same way about pepperoni rolls, but we can hash that out some other day. Uh, Mike Viola, Mike Viola, having a little fun with it at the end of it. Great information today. Um, he's at Fee, which puts out all kinds of great stuff. A couple of our other friends are there. Until uh, we get you back on Hertel again, let folks know where they can follow you, where they can keep track of what you got going on until we see you again. Yeah, absolutely. Probably the easiest place would be um, on Twitter. It's at MF underscore Viola. Someone else beat me to the version without the underscore. So I'm just always relegated to having punctuation in my handle. But uh, that's probably the easiest spot to find me. 
Uh, fantastic stuff. That's on the screen uh, right under his uh, lovely face there. If you're watching on YouTube, we'll also link to his article and all his social media. And of course, the work at Fee. Make sure you follow. They got a lot of different stuff going on with some friends of ours. Make sure you're checking out Fee.org. Mike Viola, this was a pleasure. We will do it again soon, my friend. Thank you so much for the time. Yeah, thanks a lot, Andrew. It's really a pleasure. Yes, sir. When you're detailing this down for, you know, school age, young people, high school kids, especially, you know, maybe some young college kids, that sort of age group. I mean, that's, that's almost like a children's parable when you think about it. If you just pulled it out of the blue sky and told it, it's like, oh, that's some kind of a parable for a teaching moment. Yeah. But this really happened. And it not only happened, we got it on high definition video. Yeah. I mean, th this is like this is this is living history that we just experienced. How do we keep it in the public consciousness? Because the media has already moved on from this story. You you hardly ever hear about Hong Kong in U.S. media right now, Western media. Yeah, even even you know BBC and Sky News that has bureaus there. You hardly ever hear anything about the protests anymore. And I watch it every day. How do you use those stories and that video and the stories of Grace and others and start getting it into these kids so that the next generation already has it inculcated into them? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's the point of the dissident project, right? Um, if the generations who are controlling the media uh, now aren't focused on it, then how do we, how do we uh, rectify that situation? We go to younger generations and we, we change the way that people will tell this story moving forward. That's the whole point of the dissident project. And it's incredibly important. Francis, you talked about, um, you know, having hope and then having no hope. We watched it from afar, so we see the full sequence of events. For the people in Hong Kong, it was probably a very different in how they perceive things. When was the moment that they they really knew that, you know, China had the full control and this was going to get bad? Was it the judicial reforms? Was it shutting down the free press? Uh, a lot of people that we talked to in Western media, they said when they canceled the Tiananmen vigil, which is always a big, big deal in Hong Kong, when yeah. they canceled that and didn't get a lot of pushback, that's kind of when they knew. When was it for you and, and for the folks there? When was one or the two, the mile post where they went, OK, this, this is going to get bad? 
I would say, for me, it's it's two thing, two events. The first is the when the national security law was implemented in Hong Kong. Um, that happened in July 2020 after the the protest in 2019. Um, that's the thing that when at the first time when um, we see a law from China being imposed in Hong Kong and without any any consent or without any process of consulting the community or the people, it completely bypassed the legislative body. Um, it's really a law that was passed by the People's of Con uh, People's Congress and uh, of the CCP, and implemented in Hong Kong. And it was a news that was they only published, they only announced this news in June, which is one month before the implementation of the law. And people start to wonder, like, how effective or how are they going going to enforce this law? Like, how big it is going to cover? Is it going to trace back to what people have done before? Um, does that mean saying, you know, advocating for Hong Kong independence or, you know, as simple as supporting democracy in Hong Kong would be criminalized, right? Um, so there is like a, a people, there is like a feeling of uncertainty all around the city. And then when they really, when they have the first arrestee of the national security law, that's when people start to realize, okay, that's the boundary, that's that's a red line. But still, even though you can see, you know, a very blurry red line, it, it's still like very, it's still something, it's, it, it's like, I don't know if people can see that as an indicator of what they can do or not, because they can change the rule any time. And then when they arrest someone for something that they have done in the past, people start to wonder, oh my God, like, so all of my involvement in the 2019 movement can be, can become an evident. Um, and, and so eventually there is like a feeling of white terror, a, a self-censorship in the city. And people would be like, as I said, as I mentioned earlier, when you go into social media, they don't even know if they can share this news because that can be one of the evidence against them. And um, I think the the implementation of the NSL really strikes the city and completely um, completely demolish the freedom and what we have developed in the past. Um, and that's was also one of the reasons why I left Hong Kong. And I would say the second events that happen and it really br brought people down would be the arrest of the 47 um, uh, pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong. Um, they were arrested all, all of the sudden in one morning and the court e couldn't even handle so many people. They couldn't even handle to have trials on, on these people. And they just didn't plan it. They just wanted to arrest everyone who have any who have so much influence in the city. And after they were arrested, basically all kinds of civil activities and protests or any sort of resistance stopped right there, because these people are are the people who initiate campaigns and uh, and look at policies and speak up against the government. And when these leaders were arrested, basically the people do not know what they can do. And because 
there is the 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 scariest the scariest part is that they have a hotline to report things. So if you if anyone witness or hear overheard any conversations that deemed to violate the national security law, they can report it to the hotline, and the police would come to your door and arrest you. And so there is also the the hope, the trust that was built between the community is gone now. And the only thing that people can do to live a okay life in Hong Kong is to only care about living, but not to care about what's going on in the city and what's going on around them. So I would say that's the two things that really strikes me in, in the people of Hong Kong. Francis and Grace are joining us from this Project. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, continue to talk about Hong Kong. How do you teach these lessons? What to learn from them? We're going to talk a little bit more about authoritative dictatorships from firsthand knowledge, communism, socialism, because we throw those terms around. We need to be real specific what we're talking about. More with Francis and Grace right after this. It's a very special Hurt Tale continues. We might have heard tell Grace is joining us. Francis is joining us. They're both from the Dissident Project. Um, Grace, real quick, we just heard her, you know, more of her story and what's going on in Hong Kong. It's not just Hong Kong. We have multiple people in the Dissident Project um, from all over different parts of the world. The theme that goes across all of these, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's Hong Kong, whether it's North Korea, authoritative dictatorships who need power and they have to crush dissent and they have to crush other people's freedoms to keep that power. This is universal through human history. It's always going to be this way throughout human history, I think. How do you tell that part of the story that, hey, this isn't just some ideological term we throw around on social media. This is a part of the human experience for as long as we have recorded history. And it's happening right now to real life people that through technology you can talk to like Francis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in addition to, uh, you know, the dissidents telling their personal stories, which is uh, an incredibly important part of this, um, they also talk about the technical details of uh, how these authoritarian governments uh, begin, how they take over, um, how socialism leads to communism, the economic, the economic implications of these systems uh, for the citizens of their home countries. Um, and so it's not just uh, that they're telling their personal stories, but they really are reaching back into history and talking about how these things happen, um, how uh, people groups become oppressed, uh, how countries fall into authoritarian rule. And Francis, we know the history of how Hong Kong fell under authoritative rule. We know, you know, it was British. Now the Chinese have control of it. What's the future? And I don't I don't want to be bleak about it, but, you know, the, the Communist Chinese Party is very ingrained. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. What's the immediate future of Hong Kong? Are, are they going to get even more freedoms taken away? What's the status right now today? Because like we mentioned before, the Western media has kind of stopped covering it, unfortunately, since 
probably the, the 2019 where we had those visual things. What's been going on since then and what do you anticipate in the near future? Well, as I said, on a, on a civil activity level, there's none. There's no um, protest going on in the streets. Um, and, but then I also want to mention that I think there are still resistance uh, among the people. You know, you can't you can shut people's mouth like all of a sudden and erase their memories. I think that's something we can hold hope on. And um, when there is such a huge um, oppression that exists in, in the city, that's when arts start to evolve. And that's when create like creation starts to come out. And we see many people start to um pay more attention to local arts and local music and you know just everything that's coming out from hong kong because they know that's what they can what our national identity is contained to um and they start to embrace more about the local cultures and that's how they practice and how they really lift their identity out as a hong konger so you see there are a lot of different art different um special unique things that comes out from the city and our part in excel is to promote about it and to you know amplify that um because the people back people in hong kong they do not get as much exposure and attention as they have before um and i think even now like within arts you can see people's voice are continue they are continuing to speak up and 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 to to, and then to say the values they 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 want to embrace so um when you look at little things and basically things that comes out from the city it's very it's just amazing and i i think um that's the thing that we can look forward to and who knows like i think back in 2014 i didn't imagine that something as big as as massive as the 2019 movement would happen so perhaps we can have hope that in the future something like that could happen even and and something even bigger we don't know and i can only tell you that you know for people like us outside we have the responsibility to amplify their voice and to uh, continue to bring attention to them and that's why I'm with the dissident project because I want to tell the story of Hong Kong. Basically, are are you aware of that as you do your advocacy? And I, I know we're talking with Grace. You know the way you've built the dissident project. It's going to be very online. It's very multimedia. It's multi-platform. We call it on purpose. Are you are you cognizant of that? It's like you don't really know what's going to break through, not just to Hong Kong, but the Chinese people themselves. I know they keep a real tight lock on the technology, but you never know what might get through. And you never know who might get to see it. And that little sliver, like, like, for example, when Speaker Pelosi went to Taiwan and, and the CCP just absolutely freaked out, you know, we kind of say it's like, it's not just that they're free. That scares them to death because somebody might see that and they might see somebody that's free and they might see a country that's free and something. Are you really cognizant of that? It's like every time I do this, every time I make a YouTube video, every time I do an interview, you just never know what might slide through and inspire that one more person. Yeah. Absolutely. Like they would send millions of people online, like robots to comment under video and to 
basically sent you create a huge backlash online against your video or anything that you do and that's when you know oh, this is something they care about and they're scared of and so we would do that more um i can you know a lot of times sanctions does help um sometimes when they're trying to do evil things and little things and they thought no one is gonna pay attention to and we reveal that truth they are scared too so um i you know I, we we'll just continue to do that more often you know yeah i've had a few run-ins with those state-sponsored tag twitter accounts uh once or twice because i don't care i say what i think of them and they know exactly where i stand on that grace you have to know that though when you put this project together they are very the the cp propaganda online it's very active there's a lot of bots out there they have a lot of Melissa stuff out there you got to be aware of that when you put this project together it's like this isn't just going to be us talking to kids this is a worldwide audience and there's some really bad people just going to be watching us and not liking what we're doing too right oh yeah yes we're very aware um and i think uh being strategic with our language um has been really important for us not only as we consider those different factors, which are huge, and the safety of our distance, which is huge, um, but also reaching as many people as possible, right? We want to reach people in the movable middle. Uh, we want to talk about human rights abuses. We want to talk about liberty. We want to use language that will be as uh, accessible as possible for as many people as possible. So we're being very cognizant of all of those different factors. Yeah. It's a tough road to hoe because you just you want to say certain things to people that are just that out and out wicked. But at the same time, you got to understand there's another audience. So God bless you for walking that hard line. Uh, we're going to take one more quick break. We come back. We're going to kind of wrap this up a little bit more about the dissident project. We're going to talk about those kids they are going to be talking to in the schools, the reactions, what it's like to talk to them, what it brings up in the people that do it. Because sometimes we just see the people standing in the front of the room and, and you need to know what it feels like to stand up there. I've had to do that a little bit myself sometimes. More with Grace more with Francis as we continue her tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell, talking to our good friends, Grace and Francis, the Dissident Project. Um, Francis, when you go to something like a school or even like a college or something like this, and you have that room full of people and they're just staring at you, you, you know you've got a message that matters. You know this is life and death stuff to the people of Hong Kong. What goes through your mind in that minute before you kind of get into your your routine and the things you normally say and you just got all those people staring at you and you're do you feel the weight of it? Does it hit you like, oh, what am I doing here? This this is not exactly what my life plan was. <laughs> well, I would say all the activists or dissidents that come out from our country did not imagine that we we're living the life that we're living right now. That's one thing. I have my own dream and that's not something related to politics, obviously. Um, and I didn't imagine myself would be standing in front of the classroom and talking to a bunch of students about Hong Kong. And, um, but that's what I have to do, right? And so I, I remind myself what I'm here for, um, not just for my people. It's not like I am 
a great leader that is it's like living a life against what i against my will it's it's really for myself and for people i care and you know i have family and friends back home in hong kong and those are the people that keep me fighting um till now so um i just remind myself like you know this is what i'm here for and i'm, I'm gonna, gonna do great and if they're gonna stare at me continually then i would be you know i i, I would just tell them you know let's put 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 yourself in my shoes and think about what it would be like to live a life that without freedom a life that you would scare to death that one day the police are going to knock on your door and take your parents away that's it you know and that's the life that many dissidents are living and and people living under um a communist rule are facing so um once you tell that kind of scenario and that kind of story um you're going to capture their attention. Yeah. I hate to correct guests. I rarely do it, but you're wrong, by the way. You are a great leader. Uh, <laughs> just so you know, and somebody tells you publicly, great. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.